you have your Bibles, I invite you to grab them and turn with me to the book of Romans. We are continuing our study this morning, working our way through this uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we have, have been in it for quite a while and have learned quite a bit. Uh, it, is, it is no small task studying this book together, but it is one that I, I believe and have seen the growth from from our study together as a church in this book, how how God has blessed us in this study. And this morning we are, are looking at coming coming close to the end of, of chapter 11. But I, I want to our, our focus this morning will be verses 25 through 32. And I I want to back up as we read. I want to back up and read beginning of verse 23, which we looked at last week. So look with me here in in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes this. And even they, speaking of Israel, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, were cut, excuse me, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we we come to you this morning, we come to your word, and we come in need of help. Father, we know that we, we cannot understand, we cannot rightly understand your word without your spirit guiding us and instructing us and teaching us. So spirit, we pray that you would do just that this morning. That you would teach us and instruct us and write these words on our hearts this morning. New hearts, hearts that are not made of stone, but hearts that are made of flesh, which you have given us. Write these words on our hearts. Father, give us a glimpse into this mystery that you have written down for us. Help us to to see this mystery as something that not only you are doing, but a way that we can see you as you are. For as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 83, you alone are God and you do great and wondrous things. Teach us these things out of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Church history, going all the way back to the beginning, has been filled with tension. There's been tension between church members caught in the middle of a disagreement, like uh, Iodia and Seneca and Philippi. There's been tension between different churches in debates over theology, like the, the debate at Nicaea over the identity of Jesus. There's been tension between Christians and world leaders, like the church in Rome and Nero, and all the way through. There's been tension between missionaries and hostile people groups that they seek to evangelize. But no tension has been so pronounced, so detrimental, so harmful as the tension that has existed from the beginning between Jews and Christians. You see, in this tension, it kind of makes a little bit of sense when you look at it from both sides. You see, from the Christian side, Jews are opposed to the teachings of Jesus. They, they rejected him as Messiah when he was on earth. They were the ones who crucified him. And still today, they continue to reject his teachings. And while we can understand and relate to that as Christians and see the tension that exists there, let me, from the here beginning, say this tension, these reasons are in no way a cause or a justification for the persecution of Jews that has, that has come at the hands of Christians. And there have been, you can go back a few, a decade, when the, the Passion of the Christ movie came out. And here was a movie that, that portrayed the final sufferings of Jesus and His crucifixion. Put it in very realistic terms. And at the same time, this movie was accused of being anti-Semitic because it portrayed the Jews in a negative light. And to some extent... There's truth to that claim. To some extent, they also portrayed what actually happened. But in no way does the, the, the facts of, the, of Jesus' crucifixion should ever lead the Christian to attack or to persecute Jews. But we can understand the tension that exists from the Christian perspective. I think we can also understand the tension that exists from the Jewish perspective. Christians have taken the Jewish faith, they've taken their Bible, and even taken their God, and they've twisted it into something entirely foreign to Jewish faith. Not only do Christians take an exclusively Jewish faith and turn it into a faith for everyone, they twist the oneness of God and make Him into three distinct persons. Christians not only, from the eyes of, of Jews, Christians not only misapply the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, but then they add to it their own, the New Testament. And to top it all off, Christians then try to tell Jews that they need to convert to Christianity in order to be saved. We get this tension, don't we? This tension makes sense. We can, we can relate, we can empathize and say, I understand why this tension has existed. But this morning, I, I do not believe that I could resolve that tension even if I wanted to. But I do believe... That, that Romans 11 has a lot to teach us about the relationship and the tensions that exist between Jews and Christians, both in Paul's day and in our own. Because the reality is that for the last 2,000 years, Jews and Christians have been distinct faiths, separated by the divide of Christ. But what Paul teaches us here is that this divide between Jew and Christian, between Israel and Gentile, will not exist forever. 
that the day is coming when Christians and Jews will come together under the one lordship of Jesus Christ. And that in this coming together, the church in Israel will no longer be two distinct peoples of God, but they will be united as one people of God. You see, the day is coming, church, when God's plan of salvation will be complete and all of God's people will unite together in worship of Jesus the King. And that includes both Jew and Christian. But that day is not this day. And today, it still seems like the people of God are divided into two groups. The church and Israel. And today still looks a lot like it did in Paul's day. I mean, you see, what what Romans 11 really points us to is this path that God is taking, this, this plan of salvation that God has put into action to bring about that day when Jew and Gentile will be united. And I believe that it's something that we as a church need to understand. We, while it's a difficult teaching, Romans 11 is, is one of the more difficult chapters in this entire letter. But I, I believe that we would do well to learn it and to study it and to see it for, for what it is. And so let's do that this morning, church. Let's study these verses together. And as we go through, I, I've sort of divided it under three headings just to help us kind of work our way through it. We'll walk through these one at a time, but while there are these three headings, I believe this passage teaches us one primary truth. And that truth is this. There is, and there always has been, one God who has one plan of salvation for his one people. One God, one plan of salvation, one people. And to show you this truth as we walk through this passage, let's, let's go through these, these headings. So the, heading number one is the, the mystery of God. The mystery of God. Paul begins by, by pointing out a truth that he calls this mystery. He says in verse 25, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Paul says there, there's something important here. Something that for a long time has been hidden. Something previously unknown. And now it's been revealed. And it's a truth, even a a mysterious truth that we as the church, as Christians, must now understand. But there's a warning that comes with it. That it's a warning that, that we must seek to understand it so that we do not make false assumptions about God's plan of salvation. Do not be wise in your own sight. And so to avoid being wise in your own sight, avoiding making these false assumptions about how God works and what God does, let's understand the mystery. And so there's three parts to this mystery that Paul gives. First is a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's the first part of of this mystery. And we've seen this in the last couple of weeks together, what this hardening looks like. That God gave Israel a spirit of stupor, a spirit of a spiritual numbness to the truths of the gospel. You see, it's not that Israel does not believe or refuses to believe the gospel. It's that they cannot believe the gospel because God has hardened them. But this hardening, and while it does cover most of the nation of Israel, it does not cover all of the nation of Israel. Because we've also seen that God is at work within the people of Israel, saving a remnant. 
drawing a, a select group, a, a chosen few from within the tribe of Abraham to come to faith in Christ. And so this hardening is not complete. It does not cover every Israelite, but it is partial. Most of them, yes. All of them, no. A remnant is being saved. And from Paul's day to our own day today, God is still at work saving this remnant from among Israel. Preserving them, sustaining them, saving them. But only a remnant. This hardening that God has put on Israel is partial. Part of this mystery. Second part of this mystery. Is that this partial hardening is also temporary. The hardening is partial and it's also temporary. This hardening of, that God has done on Israel, that he's placed on them, it has an expiration date. And so we can ask, well, when does that date ex- come? When, when is that expiration date? And we can look at verse 25 again. It says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And we looked at this in our, our passage from last week where we looked at this grafting imagery. How God has cut off Israel so that the Gentiles could come into the fold of the people of God. They rejected the gospel due to God's hardening. And through their rejection, the gospel then went to the Gentiles. And God has graciously brought the Gentiles in, allowing us to hear it and to believe it. They rejected it so we could be brought in. They were cut off so that we could be grafted in to the tree. And notice also, there's... It's not it's not a broader general idea of of Gentiles. There is a specificity to the Gentile number. Paul says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What he's saying is that there is a specific number. There is a specific amount. There is a specific group of Gentiles that God has in his plan that he's going to save. And when all of the Gentiles that God has planned and purposed and chosen to save are saved, that's when the hardening of Israel will end. And this is this makes sense when we understand God's election, that he chooses to save whom he chooses to save. That within his plan of salvation, he has mapped out and sovereignly ordained a number, a group, specific individuals by name. That God has chosen to save. And this, this number is, is unknown to us. We do not know this number. We, just as we do not know how or why God works in the ways that he does. His ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. And so whatever this fullness number is. Whatever this specific number may be. We do not know it. Nor do we know the, the names and the people that God is going to save. And it would be foolish to assume that we could ever put a number on this. We're not given it anywhere in Scripture. But what we do know is that God knows. That God knows this fullness. He knows how large this Gentile branch will grow to be. He knows them by name, just as he knows you by name. And that God has a plan in which he's going to save the fullness of the Gentiles. This is his plan. He knows who he will save and he knows when they will be saved. All of them. 
And when that fullness is reached, when when every Gentile, when every nation, when every people group that God has chosen to save is saved, then something else will come. And that's the third part of this mystery. So part one is a partial hardening has come upon Israel, but this hardening is temporary. And when that hardening, when that temporary hardening ends, it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. You see, the first two parts of this mystery church are being worked out before our eyes. We see them. We see it. We're living in it. But this last part points us to a day that has not yet come. It points us to the future. A day in the future when, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God's hardening of Israel will relent. And we will witness a great number of Israelites, a great number of Jews, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. How can we know this? How can we know that this is not just something Paul's pulling out of thin air? Well, keep reading because he continues by quoting the Old Testament. As Paul is known to do when he needs support for for a truth. He's not pulling stuff out of nowhere. This is what the Old Testament teaches. And so he quotes this, this passage in the Old Testament. Look at verse 26. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. The deliverer is Christ. He is the one who delivers his people from their sins. And he will come from Zion, from heaven, the place of God. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That is, he will remove the hardening that God has placed on Israel, on the tribe of Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. That Israel will enter into the new covenant of grace given through the gospel. When I take away their sin, they will believe in Jesus and be forgiven. You see, Paul's not speaking about something that's already happened. He's speaking about something that has yet to happen. He's talking very clearly in these verses about the second coming of Christ. You see, when Christ came the first time, Israel was hardened by God and they rejected him. They crucified him in their rejection, which all according to God's plan. But through Israel's rejection of the first coming of Christ, the Gentiles were brought in. And Paul says here that when Christ comes the second time, the hardening of Israel will dissipate. God will relent of his hardening of his people. And Israel as a nation will believe and be saved. Now, I think at this point, we we need to be honest about some things here. There's a lot about this, about this mystery that is left mysterious. There's a lot here we just don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know whether Israel is going to have one day of massive conversion where every Jew around the world just all of a sudden hears the gospel and believes on one single day. Or if it's going to take place over generations. I just don't know. The Bible does not teach us these things. I don't know how it's going to happen, but what we do know is that when this happens... When Israel as a nation believes the gospel, Christ is going to return. And what we also know is that the salvation of Israel is no different than the salvation of Gentiles. They are not saved in a different method or a different means. Israel will be saved in the same manner that you and I are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. 
And so we can sort of put this mystery of God all together in, in sort of a, a simpler term, a simpler image, if you will. That God's mysterious plan of salvation works like a boomerang. I, I remember as a kid, maybe, maybe many of you have similar me- memories of, of being given a, a toy boomerang as, as a child. It was one of the most frustrating toys that you could ever give a child. Because in theory, we all understand how a boomerang is supposed to work. You throw it, it flies out, and it comes back. But for whatever reason, when I threw the boomerang, I played fetch with myself. Where I threw it, had to go get it, and I threw it again, and then had to go get it again. And I remember being outside at my grandparents' house... I remember being so frustrated after spending so many times of throwing it and going to get it and doing it again. I remember grabbing this boomerang in frustration and saying, I'm done with this thing. And I threw it as hard as I could. And then I watched frozen in horror as this plastic toy of death headed straight for the power lines of my grandparents' house. And there was nothing that I could do to stop it. It's already in the air. It's going to hit this thing. I'm just I'm, I cannot move. And then somehow, mysteriously, if you will, this boomerang decides to actually work like a boomerang. And it goes under the power line and up over the power line and comes right back. And because, again, I'm frozen and cannot move for fear, it lands at my feet. And I decided to go inside and to never throw a boomerang ever again. (laughs) I mean, boomerangs, in a lot of ways, they're still a mystery to me. I don't understand the physics and the nature of how they work. But God's plan of salvation for for Jews and Gentiles works very much like a boomerang. God has thrown his boomerang. He has thrown the, the gospel. And it has left Israel. And it has gone out away from Israel and it has reached the nations. And one day that boomerang is going to come flying back to Israel and Israel is going to believe. And if you look at, at, again, going looking at church history and looking at the globe and the movement of the gospel, we can actually trace God's boomerang and how it's working out. Imagine, if you will, a, a world map here. And right here in the middle is the nation of Israel, where the gospel began, where the boomerang first left. And God threw it. And he threw it and it went up into Asia Minor. And it went up in, over into Europe over generations. And over the, the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and Europe began to grow and the gospel began to flourish. And as this boomerang continued to move, it left Europe and then went across the ocean into North America. And then down into South America. And then back across to Africa. And then is continuing, even in our own days, growing across the nation of the, the continent of Africa. And is spreading into Southeast Asia and into China. And it is all coming up. Going, you can trace the path. It is the boomerang is making its way back to where it began. The nation of Israel. I mean, this is the mystery of God, his boomerang plan of salvation. For a long time, we did not know this. Israel could never have conceived of God throwing his boomerang out like this. But Paul says this has now been revealed. It is no longer mysterious. This is God's plan. 
And I think that getting and getting a glimpse of this mystery for us to understand this is how God is working and has been working over the last 2000 years at plus. What this mystery teaches us is more than just a plan or a map for the future. You see, the, the purpose of our understanding and knowing this mystery is so that we can better know the author of this mystery. We can better know and understand who God is and what he does and why he does what he does. And so as we continue through this passage, our, our first heading is that this mystery of God. The second one is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. And it's easy for us to ask, why does God choose to work like this? I mean, let's let's be honest here. We've read through the Old Testament. We know the story of Israel. We know their faithlessness. We know their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. We know all of it. Why wouldn't he just forget Israel and punish them for their unbelief? It's what they deserve. Why go through all these steps to save a people that quite honestly, have been so faithless throughout their generations? And the answer, quite simply, is that if God rejects Israel, he rejects himself. Because to reject Israel would be to reject the promises that he made to Israel. And to reject his promises would be to reject himself. And this he cannot do. Look at verse 28 and 29. Let's see this this truth together. Paul writes, verse 28. As regards the gospel, they, Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul says that the reason, the reason that God is working this way is to highlight and to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promises. He says first that for now, Israel stands opposed as enemies to the gospel. And this is done for our sake, for the sake of the Gentiles. They rejected the gospel so that we could be brought in. And if they had not rejected the gospel, then Gentiles would have never been brought in. And so Paul says, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. It is for our good that God hardens them. I mean, the Roman church was primarily Gentiles with a small number of Jews mixed into it. That's the context. That's the audience that Paul is writing these words. And for a lot of them, this Jew Gentile, it created a division, a spirit of of arrogance from the Gentile Christians Toward their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And the Jews were hostile to the Gentiles. They were hostile towards Christians for a long time. They were the, the primary persecutors of the early church. But Paul highlights this hostility from Israel as being a benefit for the Gentiles. It is for their good, for their salvation, that Israel stands opposed to the gospel. But while they are enemies now, Paul says, they will not be enemies forever. Paul tells us that we must not forget the promises that God has made to the forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. It is because of those promises that God made that Israel is still, both in Paul's day and our own, that Israel is still beloved by God. They are his beloved. His chosen people from of old. 
Yeah, they, re- they rejected Christ and they still reject Christ today. But God loves them still because they are his. And they reject the gospel and they persecute the church and they assault Christians and God loves them still. God hardens their hearts. He gives them blind eyes and deaf ears. And yet God loves them still. Why? Because he promised he would. That's it. God loves Israel because he promised he would never forsake them. And God will never and can never go against his own promises. And then Paul says in verse 29, this it's a beautiful verse, one that we should always remember, especially in moments of despair and doubt, depression, grief, sorrow, whatever it is. Look at verse 29 of chapter 11. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They cannot be undone. God does not forsake Israel because God does not forsake his word. God does not forsake his word because he cannot forsake himself. And this truth should bring not only knowledge of the future plans of God, but this should bring us assurances, deep rooted assurances of our own salvation. You who have been called by God to Christ, you who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, you who have been made his. These things are irrevocable. They can never be taken away. Not by you, not by anyone on this planet, not by anything in this creation, not even by God himself. He cannot and will not ever revoke his promises to you. And if he does not do it for you, then he does not do it for Israel either. He will not revoke his promises. He cannot. Christian, your your security of salvation, the, the security of your eternal future, the security of your life today, tomorrow, and every day since, every day in the future, this security does not rest in your ability to remain faithful to God. It does not rest in your ability to hold fast to the teachings of Scripture. It does not rest in your ability to obey. It does not even rest in your faith. Your security rests in God's ability to remain faithful to His promises. And that is a rock, that is an anchor for our souls that will never fail. It will never grow weak. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, both to you and to Israel. Hold on to that truth. Because God will always be faithful. He will always be faithful to you as Christians. He will be faithful to Israel because of his promises to their forefathers. Faithful to his word, faithful to himself, faithful forever. Because that's who he is. Heading number three, last heading for this morning. Is the impartiality of God. The impartiality of God. So we've got the mystery of God, the faithfulness of God, the impartiality of God. The last heading here in these these last few verses of our passage point us to the similarities that exist between Jew and Gentile. And in order for us to, to not only understand this mystery, but also to remove any sense of pride that we may have towards Jews who reject the gospel, what we need to understand that God... While he is faithful, 
he is also impartial. He does not play favorites. He does not treat Jew and Gentile differently. He does not offer a plan of salvation for the Gentiles and a different one for the Jews. He is impartial and he treats us all the same, giving us the same mercy that he gives them and giving them the same mercy that he gives us. Look at me with these these last three verses, 30 through 32. This is what Paul says. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Several truths that, that sort of pop out of this, these verses. So let's consider them carefully. First, notice, notice what we share in common with Israel. Both groups are disobedient and both groups need mercy. You see, we were disobedient. Disobedient to God, disobedient to his law, to his righteousness, disobedient and deserving the wrath and the judgment of God. But we have received mercy in Christ. He received the wrath and the judgment that we deserve. He stood in our place at the cross and was punished for us. And because he received our wrath, we now receive mercy. We receive from God freedom from the judgment that we rightly deserve. Because Christ, who did not deserve it, received it for us. We were disobedient. We received mercy. Israel is disobedient, disobedient to God, disobedient to his law and righteousness, disobedient and deserving wrath, even more so now that they have rejected the Messiah sent by God. But while we recognize our disobedience, as we read the teachings of Scripture, Israel still today fails to see their disobedience. They fail to see it clearly. They still believe that by trying to obey God's law, by by being ethnic Israelites, by belonging to the tribe of Abraham. They believe that they are not deserving of God's wrath. Not worthy of his judgment. But here we must notice a second truth. How does God plan on revealing the disobedience to Israel? And he says it quite clearly by showing mercy to us. And we looked at this last week, but here it comes up again that 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 God intends by showing mercy to a people that do not belong to Israel. That this action of God showing mercy will provoke jealousy among the people of Israel. We don't don't miss this. The, The mercy that God shows to you is done for two reasons. First, because we need it. We, we cannot get by without it. Without God's mercy, we are doomed. And God gives us mercy because we need it. But second, and equally important, but rarely if ever talked about, God shows mercy to you because he wants Israel to look at you and ask, why are the Gentiles receiving from God what should be given to us? Why are we no longer receiving from God What we used to receive. And by asking these questions, by by living in this state of Israel, uh, of jealousy, Israel, by God's design, is going to come to Christ in faith 
by grace for salvation. So then church is our job. It is our mission as Gentile Christians to live in such a way that highlights the mercy of God that is given to us and to proclaim that mercy so that those without it want it. Let's face it, church. Every morning you and I wake up and we wake up with the promises, the guarantees of Scripture that his mercies are new to us every single morning. Which means that every morning that you wake up, every time you see the sunrise, no matter what the previous day's sins and failures were, today is different because today it's new. And his mercies are refreshed and they are new. And they are sufficient to cover yesterday's failures and today's failures. And this morning we can wake up and be reminded of his new mercies for us every single day. That's a good thing. But the reality is that there are many, many whom you know, whom you work with and live with and live around and and go to the grocery store with and all around you. There are many who wake up and that sunrise is not a reminder of new mercies from God. That sunrise is another reminder that here's another day for me to fail. Here's another day for me to hurt. Here's another day for me to feel pain. And heartbreak and tragedy and brokenness. Here's another day without hope, without meaning, without life or joy or peace or any of it. Christian, your role, God has called you to this task. It is your job not only to live in light of the new morning mercies he gives you, but to live in such a way that people who do not have it see it in you and they want it. It is our job to live in a way that highlights his mercy. And we don't broadcast our successes. We broadcast our need for new mercy every single day. And we proclaim that this needed mercy has been given in Jesus. And in all of this, the the third truth that, that pops out here is that the way that God plans to save Israel is the same as he planned to save us. God has consigned all to disobedience. So that he can have mercy on all. Now this all term is not every human being around the world who's ever lived. Let's clear that. But it is all of his people. He has consigned all of his people to disobedience. That he may have mercy on all of his people. And there are not two plans of salvation. God doesn't save the Gentiles through faith in Christ. And then save Israel through some other means. There are not two peoples of God. There are not two salvations of God. Just like there are not two gods. A God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. These things don't exist. There is one God. And that means there are one people of God. And that means that people, that one people is saved by one means of salvation. Jesus. And we could go back to the grafting illustration that Paul used in the previous passage to get to this. We could, we could dive into the fact that God doesn't have two trees in this garden that he's grafting people in. A Jewish tree and a Gentile tree. He's got one tree. And he's grafting the Gentiles into the Israelite tree. And there's so much more that could be said about how this speaks and what this speaks to. 
But the reality is, church, is that God is not saving two people. He's saving one. He's not interested in saving a Jewish nation and a Gentile nation. He's saving one nation. A nation that consists of members from every tribe and tongue. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. He says, remember, Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's taken away the division between Jew and Gentile. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace. He continues and says, so then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. With the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is it. Christian, you belong to the one people of God by grace through faith in Christ. Israel, who's been cut off for now, will one day come back. As the boomerang returns and they will be included in the one people of God because they, too, by grace, through faith, believe in Jesus. And this plan of salvation has been a mystery for a long time. How could God save Israel from their sins and also save the rest of the nations? In the past, we just didn't know. But now we do. God hardened Israel and cut them off and he's grafted us in. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, the hardening of Israel will relent. They will believe in Jesus for salvation and they will be grafted back in. And this God does because he is faithful. He's faithful to his promises, faithful to Israel, faithful to us. His word will never fail because his gifts and callings are irrevocable. And the reason he does it all like this is because he is impartial. He does not play favorites. All are disobedient and all receive mercy. I know that as we've studied here, there's not a ton of ways that I've given you that this teaching impacts your life today. I mean, quite honestly, I'd be shocked to hear that there's a majority in this room that has a ministry with a lot of Jewish people. But I want to end and, and give you one way here. But I also want you to, to point, I want to point you to next week. Because next week, as we close out Romans 11, Romans 11, 33 through 36, this is the application of the entire chapter. And it's worship. It's worship. When we come to understand who God is and what He does and why He does, and we begin to grab our, wrap our hands around this mysterious plan of salvation, the only thing that we can do is to join Paul in this almost spontaneous outburst of worship. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. But from this, from our passage this morning, let, 
Look back at verse 25. And you'll notice that Paul begins with this warning. Do not be wise in your own eyes. So there's a challenge from this passage, uh, Christian, then it's for you to not assume that you know what God is doing or not doing. That's what being wise in your own sight is. It's, it's saying that in my understanding and from my vantage point, from my perspective, I get it. And Paul says, don't do that. Come to Scripture. See what God's revealed. Gentile Christians assumed that God was done with Israel, that, he had, that they had rejected the gospel, so God had rejected them. And that there was no hope for the nation of Israel. But Paul says, no, no, no. That may be what you assume God is doing. But you've missed the mystery here. And I think there's an inherent danger for us to do something similar. For us to assume that God does things a certain way. Or has a plan for our lives that that goes a specific path. Or that God is, is done with an individual or a group of people. You see, we all too easily assume these various things to be true without ever considering what the Bible actually teaches. There's a difference between being wise in the teaching of Scripture and being wise in our own sight. Does God promise to punish the wicked? Yes. But doesn't he also promise to show mercy and grace to the wicked? Yeah. Does God have a plan for your life? Yes. But do you know every detail of that plan? You may know how you want it to go. But that doesn't mean that God is bound to your wants. Christian, don't don't be wise in your own sight. Instead, be wise in the knowledge of Scripture. Be wise in the fear of the Lord. Be wise in the mysteries of God. As Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. As you, as you go out this week, consider ways to live, in, to live in a manner that highlights mercy. To show mercy to others. To point them to the source of your mercy. And do not be wise in your own sight. I, I hope you'll come back next week as we finish Romans 11 because these last four verses really highlight the, the applications of all that we've been studying and if you have the time, if you're not sure of what to read in your Bible this week, let me encourage you two, two ways that you can study in preparation for next Sunday. First is to go back and read Romans 11 in its entirety in one sitting. And the second way is a little bit broader, but it's to go back and start at Romans 9, verse 1, and read all the way through the end of chapter 11 in one sitting. It will take you 20, 30 minutes, maybe 45 tops. But go and read all that we've been studying over the last several months and read it all in once and see how this is being unpacked and unfolded. And then come back next week and we will study God's word, but we will study what worship is. To see God as he is and to sit in awe of who he is. Pray with me. God, we're thankful for your word and for all that you've given Help us, Father, help us to highlight mercy. Help us to trust the wisdom of Scripture and not the wisdom of ourselves. And be glorified in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.